this uh, is the penultimate talk in this series. So Ian, next week, he's going to be looking at the Holy Spirit. But tonight, uh, or not tonight, sorry, so used to speaking in the evening. Today, uh, I have the, um, the joy of speaking on the church. So we're going to be looking at this line in the creed. It says this, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. Now, let me begin by clearing up what those phrases mean. You might have noticed them as, we have, uh, as, as we've gone through the creed and we've read it at different times and said, Holy Catholic Church? What do you really mean by that? Well, it's, um, it, it's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the Catholic Church as we know it necessarily. In this instance, it just simply means universal. So it means the universal church. And so sometimes the creed is translated as the universal church rather than Catholic Church. Um, but it is simply saying we believe in the whole church. Not just the vineyard, which is our tribe, is our colors. We believe in every church that, that honors Jesus and holds to the creed. So it's super simple. That's all it's saying. Now, the communion of the saints. Another slightly confusing phrase. Sounds quite grand. It sounds wonderful. Really, all it is is just an archaic phrase for a really simple idea. Christians living in community. When you read the New Testament, um, what you see is you see uh, saints being used as this catch-all phrase for followers of Jesus. Now, across church history, um, there's been moments where uh, that phrase has adapted and it's come to mean sort of a particularly holy or pious person that's done maybe something, uh, you know, really, really good. And as I'm saying that, even some you know, saints might be coming to mind and going through that. But that's not what it originally meant. Originally, it was just believers. So we are all saints. That's, that, you and I were all saints. Not the 90s pop group. <laughs> um, I actually had to Google them to remember. It. I was like, because there was also, you know, I'm going to move on. It's fine. I listen to some of their music. Yeah, there we go. Um, but when you read the New Testament, the picture it paints is one where Christians live side by side in community, doing life together regularly. And the New Testament doesn't ever indicate that we as followers of Jesus can do it alone. It's just an alien idea in the New Testament. So when we say, I believe in the communion of the saints, we're saying that we believe that Christians need each other, that they should live in friendship and community together, they should do life together. So with that cleared up, let's jump into the Bible today. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, so if you've got your Bible, open up there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, as Ian said, we would love to give you one for free today. They're just back outside, grab one at the end. You can always download one on your phone as well if you like. Um, if you're new to the Bible, Ephesians is in the New Testament, so if you open up towards the end, you'll find it um, probably about 50 to 100 pages away from the end. Uh, and Ephesians is a letter written by a guy called Paul, uh, and he, he started many of the, the churches, um, uh, the first churches. And this letter, Ephesians, was written to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. And so that's what's, um, what's going on. And today we're going to be in chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 11. And what we find here is Paul talking about the church. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, it says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of the people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grays and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So let's jump right in. Verse 11, the passage begins with, So Christ himself gave. And this roots us in the, the fundamental belief that the church belongs to Jesus and not to us. The book of Ephesians, when Paul was writing this letter, he talks quite a lot about the church throughout it. And he starts in chapter 1 in verse 22 by saying that Jesus is the head of the church. And he is. And then when Jesus himself uh, actually speaks of the church, he speaks to one of his followers, Peter, a passage some of us will know in Matthew 16. And he says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. He doesn't say the church. He doesn't say a church. He says, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus. The Vineyard Church here in Cardiff, it does not belong to James and Jen, who are our senior pastors. This North site does not belong to Ian and Safe. It is not theirs. It is Jesus's. He is the head of this church. He is the leader of our church. Now, as it says in verse 11, he gives certain people roles in order to care for his church. So, yes, Ian and Safe are the pastors of this congregation. They're here to shepherd God's community in this place. But this church isn't theirs. It's Jesus. So, that's all well and good. The church, it belongs to Jesus. But what do we actually mean when we say the word church? You know, for most people in our culture, if we were to say, well, you know, what is church? They'd probably think about a building, maybe a building they go to once or twice a year, maybe Christmas and Easter. Maybe it's a building that they just, you know, they just refer to it as a direction. You know, it's, oh, you come up the road, you pass the church on the left, and then the pub's on the right, you know, that kind of thing. They, and for them, it is just, it's just a building. It's something that they go to. And you know, if, if you're exploring faith, maybe you're new to us as a community, you might have been a bit confused when you came along and you're like, oh, we're in a hotel. I was expecting to be in a bit more of a traditional building. But we are. We're not. We're in a hotel. You see, when you read the New Testament, though, what you find is the word church applies to any group of believers at any level. So it applies um, to a few believers gathered in a private home, kind of like a small group environment. You could call that church. The word church applies to the church in a city. So the city of Cardiff, the church in Cardiff. When you read the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, sometimes you'll see Paul say, to the church in this location, to the church in the city. Church also applies to a whole region, the church in Judea and Samaria. So the church in South Wales, say, that's what it would look like for us. It also, though, refers to the global church. So the worldwide church of all churches, all followers of Jesus. And then the word in the New, Te in the New Testament church also refers to uh, the church of the followers of Jesus of all time, both living and dead. So it is quite a broad term, and it is definitely not just the building. In the, in the Bible, the word that we translate for church most often is the word ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia. And the term ecclesia wasn't originally a religious term, <clears throat> but it was a word that everyone would have known because every single Greek city had an ecclesia. An ecclesia was a group of citizens selected and set apart by, uh, to represent their city and look after its interests. So there's this group of people, and it's like, okay, well, these are the ecclesia. But the term ecclesia wasn't just about this group of people. It was also about the location in the city that they met. So there would be a meeting point that they would have that every, fairly regularly they would then gather, be instructed by their leader as to the affairs of the city, to what was going on, and for how they as the representatives could care for the city. So when the writers of the New Testament used this word ecclesia, 
their readers would have clearly got the link that they were trying to make. The, the first thing would be, hey guys, you are the selected group of people who are citizens of heaven. You are the family of God. And God has selected you and he has set you apart to represent his kingdom and take care of his kingdom's interests. That is who you are. But the second thing is, as the people of God, you need to gather together regularly to be instructed in the ways of God. They would have, they would have clearly, because that was, the way, that was what the term meant. And so for them, this idea that, okay, yes, we are the people, so the church is the people. But it's also the gathered environment. That would have been so clear for them. For us, we've lost that. We've gone, okay, well, we, you know, we go to a church, it goes to a building. It's like, no, we are the church, but we also gather as the church. It's both and. So, that's great. But why do we gather as church? What is the point of coming out on a Sunday morning, of gathering together? Why do we do it? Well, let's jump back into the passage. So back into Ephesians 4, verse 12. To equip his people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know what, the first thing um, I want to draw out is that we gather to be united around the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We gather to share his good news and to become mature followers of him. You know, as a church, we want to always share the good news of Jesus. The gospel message that Jesus died for our sins, that we can be forgiven by him. I love that we sang that song this morning that we finished with. Just goes through, it's like, oh, oh man, I am now a child of God. It's the gospel message. So many of the songs today had it, and it was wonderful. That we can be forgiven, that our shame and our brokenness can, have, can, can now have no hold over us anymore. It can be wiped away by his grace. That Jesus, he broke the power of death and darkness, and that every power has to bow to him now. This is the good news of the gospel, that through his resurrection, Jesus invites us into new life. That we who were once far from God become adopted sons and daughters. You know, and if you're here for the first time, you're exploring faith, this is what we want you to hear. That there is an invitation to you to new life. Invitation to receive grace unimaginable. What I love, though, is the church doesn't just exist. And Christianity isn't just, oh, we need to know that message and we need to be like, okay, great, wonderful, so I'm forgiven, great. What does that mean? The church exists to mature us as followers of Jesus. At the heart of the gospel, we become adopted sons and daughters. That's the kind of a key gospel image that's used. We enter into the family of God. And I find the adoption analogy super helpful in understanding what this means for us as we, what, what maturing into uh, Christian faith means. So, um, you know, in our church, we love adoption. We've got a number of kids who have been adopted, a number of families going through the adoption process. We love it. Uh, and some of my close friends adopted a, child, a little boy a few years ago and kind of get, got to see it firsthand. But in the adoption process, when a child is adopted, at that moment, the, um, the document is signed, the legal uh, contract is written, well, I don't know all of the terms exactly, but at that moment, a child takes on a new identity. In that moment, things change. That child now has full access to the rights of being a child. They can never be more or less of a child of that family now. It's done, it's sealed, it's happened. But they do have to learn how to be a child of that family. 
You know, the same is true for us. When we become Christians, our identity changes. So like, love, in that last song we sang, it's like being born again into your family. That's the truth. In that moment, our identity shifts. But we then have to learn how to live in the new identity that we have. And sometimes that takes a really, really long time. I mean, let's think about it. We jump back into the um, uh, analogy of a child being adopted. In that example, if, let's say, a child has been adopted out of a family that's been really abusive, right? they, and they weren't safe there. Now they're adopted, they are now safe. That has shifted. That reality has changed. That has gone. But it's going to take them quite a long time to begin to learn that they are always safe to learn that they can trust the roles of parents again. Now, the reality has changed, but they're learning to live out that reality. Image is the same for us. You know, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the power of our sin, of our shame, of our mistakes is broken, but it often takes time for us to deal with the effects of those things, doesn't it? And to learn that we are forgiven, that we are free, that we are redeemed. And that's the process of maturing into faith. And it's the picture that Paul is painting here that we would mature as followers of Jesus. You know, um, <clears throat> naturally, you know, in, in my role as one of the, the pastors of the church, I get to chat to people as they go through different things. And, and quite often, Christians can be quite downcast, can't we? Because we can beat ourselves up of, oh, I still am doing that thing. Or I'm still thinking like that. Or I'm going back to that pattern of behavior. I can't seem to get free of this, you know, whatever it may be. The truth of the gospel, though, is, you know, we were set free. So when Jesus died and rose again, we were set free. When we, when we accept him as Lord and Savior, set free. But then the mystery of the gospel is that we, are, we were set free, but we're also being set free. So like the, like the analogy of the adoption, that child is now part of that family, and then it's learning to be part of that family. That's the reality, isn't it? Now, it's not to say that sin is okay. That's not what I'm saying in any way whatsoever. We obviously, we need to be going towards Jesus and learning to live in holiness and all that type of thing. But it's to say that the gospel makes space for the process of maturing. And say so that you're, if you're here and, and you're just like, oh my word, I feel so guilty and so ashamed because I still have this pattern of behavior in my life. That pattern, you know, if it's a, you know, let's say it's a simple pattern, let's just, you know, ob obvious one, um, you know, porn. Let's say you're addicted to porn. That is not good. That's not okay. That's sin. We need to deal with that. But there is also now no longer condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the invitation from Jesus is into maturity, is into dealing with that pattern of sin and breaking it and walking in holiness. The enemy brings the lie of, oh, well, you're not really a Christian, then are you? Oh, you did that again. Oh, if they knew, oh, they would be so ashamed. That's the lie of the enemy, isn't it? But when we gather as church, we come into an environment where we can hear the truth of the gospel. We can be called into holiness, but we can be loved as we go on that journey. Um, I want to shift gears slightly, and I want to comment quickly um, on one area, uh, I guess, that I see that Christians need to mature um, in the West. Uh, Paul it says in verse 13 that we mature until we reach all so until we all reach unity in the faith. Um, you know, across different churches, even just in Cardiff, you could probably throw a stain not too far from here and find churches that look different to us. They have different styles of worship, different emphases. But you know what? At the core, we're all on the same team. 
we're, like, we're all going the same direction, trying to love and honor Jesus. And one of the things in this church, we're not interested in trying to say that we're better than any other church or saying, oh, the way we do it is right, the way they do it is wrong. Not interested in that. Um, back in the central site at this time of year, we get a lot of new students coming to us. One of the things we say to all of them is something along the lines when we meet them is like, hey, like, you know what, there are so many great churches in Cardiff. We would love for you to be a part of us, but you know what, if, if you want to go somewhere else, that is great. There are so many great ch churches. The most important thing is that you just get into community. It doesn't matter where it is. Because we love the church in Cardiff. And we really do believe that it is his bride. We're united with them. And I guess, um, as we were talking about it as a preaching team, we just kind of re you know, reflect on how we work as a church. And I guess one of the things that we want to say, and, and I want to say is, uh, because, because we are all on the same team, because we love the church, we do our best in this church to not talk down about other churches. Um, and you know what, this, I, I just want to say, this isn't a rebuke of me trying to be like, oh, hey, I, you know, I've had conversations with each of you, and I, this is, but it's just kind of letting, letting you know how we operate as a church. We don't, we don't want to talk negatively about the bride of Christ. We don't want to slag other churches off. We don't want to criticize them. We just want to love them. Now, um, as I say that, I also want to hold the tension um, that some of us in the room may have been really hurt by a church. You know what? The reality is some of you have been hurt by this church. Some of you may have even been hurt by me. You know, it, that's the reality of being in church. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't process our pain. I'm not saying we shouldn't acknowledge our pain. Um, obviously, you've got to process pain in order to uh, kind of walk in healing. And also say that it doesn't define your life. You know, I've chatted to some, some people and actually chat to them, and they're still carrying the bitterness of uh, a past hurt from like 15 years ago. And it's still so raw that when they talk about it, it sounds as if it happened last week. You know, it's, it's So the challenge is not that we don't process our pain, but that we do it healthily and in an honoring way. I was um, thinking about it in terms of marriage. Uh, you know, I'm married to a wonderful lady called Claire. Uh, you know, sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes there are, you know, we'll go through three seasons where we're really frustrated with each other. And my response isn't to walk into the office and to criticize her and to make her flaws pub public and to kind of badmouth her and be like, I'm so frustrated. Even if I'm so frustrated, that's not my response because she's my wife and I love her and I want to honor her. What I would probably do is go to a couple of place, uh, trusted friends and say, hey, you know what, I'm really struggling. Actually, I am struggling with Claire at the moment because of this or because of this. But you know what, I am not going to slag her off publicly because she's my wife. And I, and I guess I just found that helpful because, you know what, if we've been hurt by the church, it's still Jesus' bride. It's one of the metaphors in the New Testament is that the church is the bride of Christ. And so the challenge is for us is how do we engage with our, our pain in an honoring way? that still loves the church. Um, I also just want to say, sorry, just a quick point on this. I guess it just felt like it was important um, to acknowledge publicly is that when we talk about unity in the church and when we talk about um, loving the whole church, that doesn't mean that we don't call out things uh, when a church or people in a church do something wrong. It doesn't mean we just try and cover it up. And you know what? Sometimes parts of the church have been really bad at this. Um, you know, things like, abuse or financial mismanagement and those things they are just not okay and um, at, at times uh, how the church has handled those things is not okay kind of you know, global church we're talking about here uh, sexual abuse in the church it's horrific totally not okay and actually you know sometimes we see on the news the way that churches have dealt with it is also not okay 
Um, and I guess I just wanted to say is like we believe, and that is our fundamental thing, that actually when that happens, it should be dealt with with justice, with integrity, openly. It shouldn't be a hidden thing. And you know what? Again, if you've been um, hurt by a church, maybe how a church has handled that, maybe, it, maybe something like that has happened to you in, in the abuse side of things, then we would love to walk that through with you. This is a safe space to do so. Um, yeah. So, we gather as church to be equipped to mature as Christians. Um, and, you know, I will, I will finish with this point just so that we have a chance to pray for each other this morning. Um, Paul says that we're equipped to mature. And he goes through the list of different ways that we're equipped. And essentially, this word equipped means to provide someone with everything they need for a particular purpose. So he's saying that in the church, there's everything we need to grow into maturity. Um, and one of these things that we, I think, again, in the West, we really need to grow maturity in is our engagement with society's view of individualism. We've spoken about it a lot. I, I, I talk about it a lot because I think it's so rampant in our culture that in the moment we find ourselves in, it's just we have this strong belief of the, of the individual and that we shouldn't be in community and that no one else should tell us what to do, that we shouldn't come under any authority, that freedom should be defined only by myself, all that kind of stuff. Don't have time to dig into it now. The reality is it's resulted in Christians then thinking, actually, I don't need to be part of a community. And, and they, they don't necessarily think negatively towards a church community. They're, they just don't think it's a problem that they don't go to church. Or maybe they see it as, ah, I've been to church a couple of times in the last few months. That's, like, I'm just part of my church. You know, I, I get to hang out with a lot of the, the kind of the Gen Z and the millennial. I mean, I am a millennial, but, you know, other millennials and Gen Zs coming through. And they have this thing where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I just listen to, to podcasts and worship music. Like, it's great. And those things are cool. Um, I thought about it. They, it's, like, it's like saying you're a rugby player. So if you come and say, hey, man, I play rugby, I'm like, oh, cool, cool, what, what, time do you, what team do you play for? It's like, oh, no, man, I, I, don't, I don't play for a team. I just watch a whole bunch of games on YouTube. Maybe when I'm working out, I listen to some commentary. I pretend like I'm in the ruck. And it's, all, it's like, cool, you're not a rugby player. <laughs> you like rugby. You're a fan. Those things, and, and watching games and all that stuff, that's going to help you be a rugby player? You're not a rugby player until you play for a team. Now, obviously, every analogy is limited, all that kind of stuff. The heart behind it is, is I guess it's, it's saying, what does it look like for us to be committed to the local church? Because as I said right at the start, the New Testament doesn't paint a picture where it's, it's just an alien thought that we could be Christians and not involved in community. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole kind of like range of reasons why we would want to be or why we need to be. Um, I, just, I just want to finish with this, that it ultimately... Because when we're in community, it actually gives us a chance to practice out the ways of Jesus. When you do online church, and like, I'm not knocking online church totally, I think it's really helpful in some ways. You don't ever have to forgive anyone. You don't ever have to show anyone grace. No one has to show you grace. You don't ever have to serve coffee to someone you don't like. Because let's, let's be real. You know, there are people, and it's like, oh, it's like, it just don't click with you. Oh, man, oh, you said something last week, you really hurt me. Okay, you know what, actually, I need to, I'm going to serve you coffee again. I'm going to walk out being like Jesus. And we gather together to be instructed and to unpack the scriptures and to learn, learn about being followers of Jesus. But then we gather together so that we practice it, so that we live it out.
say that we do it. Um, just finally, verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grays and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a, <clears throat> in lots of metaphors in the New Testament about what the church is, and it is described sometimes as the body of Christ. You might know another passage, I think it's in Corinthians, where it's like, you know, we're different parts, and if the foot in the ear and the hand and they all need to work together in church there is a place for you there is we and the way we describe it in the Ian talks about being on a team is it's a family meal this church is just us doing family meals all the time all the time and when you cook a family meal someone does one part someone makes the cuts the veg someone uh, you know Ava cooks the meat someone lays the table someone washes up someone tells the jokes all of that kind of stuff that's just, we all, we all plug in and do it together. And the reality is um, that you might be here and you might be like, oh, you know, I, I, is there a place for me? I don't know. It all, it all like, seems like it runs, seems like they need, I can just turn up. It's like, nah, that's not family. There's always room for one more. There's always a space for you. There is a role for you in the body of Christ. Um, you know, for time, lesson, why don't we stand?